like to begin this evening by expressing, again, a word of appreciation and thanks to those men who fill this pulpit last Lord's Day with the truth and the power and the soundness that certainly is presented forth from it. And as always here at Pippin, whether it be our men or those whom we invite to come, we're always thankful, aren't we, to be able to open the Bible, to be challenged and encouraged by it, by those whose lives mimic that which we read and who are serious about encouraging us to do the same. Certainly tonight, as we come to perhaps thoughts that build on that idea, I'd like to ask you to consider what happens to those that defy the God of heaven, to those who by virtue of their life and who by virtue of their intent and their character stand in rebellion and quite frankly a defiance to the great God of heaven. Perhaps there is no character in the Bible, old or new, that more quickly comes to mind than the one whom we shall consider this evening. So first of all, perhaps these introductory thoughts to motivate us toward, toward that end. Certainly as we are reminded of so many noble characters of the Bible, no doubt to your mind and mine rushes those very impressive individuals. And isn't it true, the 11th chapter of Hebrews lists for us a whole host of the heroes of faith. Those from Adam through Noah and Abraham, all the way down through those like even Isaac and Isaiah as well. I've listed just a few of those for your consideration. And I even chose to add a few names to that that the inspired writer there didn't add. We probably would add Paul in his later life. The devotion, the fervent and ardor way in which he, in fact, gave his life over to the full completion of the will of God. We might even mention Gaius, found, of course, in that book of 3 John and that interesting little book that was addressed in relation to him. What a faithful servant of the Lord he must have been. But just as surely as you can mention them, what about those Bible characters that seemingly were much more foolish? We might even say rebellious. We might observe the fact that the Bible lists for us the nature of the decisions that they made, and you and I at times almost recoil as we give the foolishness to the, what they chose to do. You know that what Adam and Eve chose to do in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. We know well what Judas chose to do in Luke chapter 22. And we know well, of course, what Jeroboam chose in 1 Kings chapter 12. But isn't it true that tonight the spotlight will be cast on a woman? Her name is Jezebel. And I'm sure that the very mention of that name quickly brings to mind a number of matters, and we shall have opportunity to look at them in some detail tonight. As we do that, let's begin with a slide I've entitled, something I would hope would never be descriptive of any of us, a sorry life. As you stop for a moment and think about those other individuals, those that we listed a moment ago that made poor decisions, those like Judas, those like Adam and Eve, isn't it quite likely possible to say that in every one of those instances there was at least a period of time in that person's life when it could be said that all appeared to be well? That certainly was true of Adam and Eve prior to the events of Genesis 3.1. That appeared to be also true of Judas in Matthew chapter 10. But as you think about Jezebel... Were there ever any moments, periods of life, in which she appeared to be doing that which prosperous in the sight of God? Let's build a consideration of this sorry life. First, what does the name Jezebel mean? And what impetus might there be even in relation to that thought? Well, as you can tell, 
The word Jezebel literally means Baal exalts. And you and I are familiar with the fact that among those ancient gods of the Palestinian part of the world, Baal was one of the most highly regarded and highly sought gods. And yet her name it pays homage, reverence if you please, to Baal. That's not a good way to start, is it, to be named in a fashion like that. You'll appreciate that she was a notable Old Testament woman, and to say that she pursued the service and the worship of Baal is quite frankly an understatement. It appears that virtually every time her name is mentioned and every time legislative action due to the queen is made mention of, she is in light of and pursuant to that which was the matter of Baal. No wonder then some of the next statements come before us. She takes great prominence because Ahab, the king of Israel, selected her to be his wife. And in so doing, you'll notice in 1 Kings 16.31, as well as 1 Kings 21.25, the text especially informs us that she stirred him up. He appeared to be readily willing to follow that which was her advice, that which was her desire and her intent, and thus Ahab also encouraged the matter of Baal worship in the ancient people of Israel. When you and I remember then that God had specifically told His people, do not in any circumstance give adherence to and support of these. And yet here was the king and his first lady, the queen who was encouraging the very thing that God loathed. The very first of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And we notice the second commandment was very much powerfully linked with it. They were not to make any graven images of anything, be it on earth, in the heavens, or beneath the earth. And yet we find that Ahab and Jezebel, the first lady and of course her husband the king, we're not only encouraging that, but we're almost demanding it of the people of Israel. Maybe the next statements then quickly come before us. To give you an intent of how much she hated the ways of God, how much she not only detested it, but sought to eliminate any service to God, she actually killed the prophets of God. In 1 Kings 18, 13, she slew them. She gave the royal decree whereby that was to take place, and at one particular instant then, a large number of the prophets of God were eliminated from ancient Israel. Beyond that, you'll notice that she even had an intent to kill Elijah, that noteworthy, bold, and courageous prophet of God. You might remember with me that in the opening verses of 1 Kings 19, she made the following statement. She said, if by this time tomorrow I make not the life of Elijah like those others I've killed, her intent was to take his life and do so rather soon. She didn't appreciate in the slightest the fact that on Mount Carmel, we remember that contest that took place, and Elijah was such that God did send fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice, but the prophets of Baal were unable to do it. On that occasion, the prophets of Baal were slain, and she wasn't happy even a little bit. In the aftermath of that, she intended to kill Elijah. You'll notice furthermore, she planned that rather sad episode we find in 1 Kings 21. We remember it well, and often doesn't it reflect so pitifully upon Ahab and she alike. 
you remember that Naboth was the owner of a vineyard that was relatively near and adjacent to the palace itself, and Naboth wanted it, or rather I should say Ahab desired that vineyard when Naboth would not sell it. We remember that Ahab came into the house, the palace, if you will, and was rather distraught. His countenance had fallen. He pouted. And we remember that Jezebel was somewhat upset that he would react like that. After all, he was the king, and so she came up with that plan. You may remember it involved lies. It involved murder. It involved destroying the character and reputation of a well-known man in Israel. She cared not the slightest. After Naboth was dead, she then told Ahab, Go and take that which you wanted. Although perhaps the land of Israel as a whole wasn't aware of what had happened, God knew it. And He encouraged Elijah to come and straightforwardly tell Ahab that what he had done was known to God and that there would, of course, be the judgment of God toward that end. That judgment of God involved Ahab's death. I'd invite you to notice briefly 1 Kings 21, 19. As the prophet came before the king Ahab, and may we not forget that the king was the highest civil officer in the land. Who do you suppose would have had the nerve to come before the king and directly confront him and tell him that he was in the wrong and even inform him of his death? And yet he, we notice Elijah did by the power of God. He came and straightforwardly told him that his death would not be a pleasing thing. Finally, you'll notice, two verses later, he even testified of Jezebel's death as well. Both of these who were so encouraging of the worship of Baal would be brought to death, and that would be the sentence of God's judgment on this pair for their evil, for their iniquity, for their ungodliness. Perhaps finally on that slide... It would be an understatement almost, but at least note this with me. It would be safe to say that Jezebel was a woman who opposed God and defied Him. She had the prophets of Baal eating at her table. She slew God's prophets. She even wished to slay the man we know of as Elijah. As we turn the page, turn the slide, if you will, from a sorry life... Let's then ask about the nature of that prophecy that Elijah had uttered and ask about its fulfillment under the title of a gruesome death. As you look at the death that's portrayed, may we ever keep in mind that the book of God simply tells the truth. It tells us what transpired in the affairs and the life of these individuals. And so as we come now to the text of 1 Kings twenty-two thirty-seven. We read about Ahab's death, and on that occasion we read about it in ways like this. Ahab had gone into battle. Amazingly enough, he had taken great effort to disguise himself so that the troops, by and large, would not know who he was. And yet he still wasn't able to escape the arrow of those who were out by judgment of God to kill him. And again, in chapter 22, verse 37 we find that sure enough, just as the prophet Elijah had said, the dogs licked up Ahab's blood after he died. You may recall in the chariot where his driver carried him aside, his blood was spilled in there and the dogs licked it up after he was dead. You and I now might wonder, what about the death of Jezebel? We've already found that Ahab died just as Elijah had said that he would. 
At this point, let's fill in a detail or two that helps us appreciate what's about to come in 2 Kings 9. We remember that God made the statement that another king would be appointed. One, of course, after this era of such evil, and a man named Jehu was appointed as king. And one of the things that God asserted relative to Jehu was that he would, in fact, not only remove the evil of the house of Ahab, but he would do so completely. There would not be a man-child of Ahab's descendants left. With that thunderous matter, we notice that when Jehu was anointed, the prophet told him that was the sentence and commission that God gave him. Jehu proceeded to carry it out with great fervor. In fact, he hunted down Ahab's descendants and saw to it that they were slain. You and I might notice, though, that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is still living. Come with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 9. I'd like you to observe as we read a few of the verses found in that chapter. 2 Kings, the ninth chapter. Beginning in verse number 30, these are the statements that close that chapter. Somewhat graphic, but don't they paint the picture well? And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jehu or Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face and tired her head and looked out at a window. Almost immediately you'll notice with me that in his fervor to eliminate all of these that were the descendants of Ahab and all of these that were encouragers of the way of Ahab, we notice that Jehu came to Jezreel, a location somewhat north in ancient Israel. Keep in mind it was very near Samaria where the palace of Ahab was. Notice the text then says, Jezebel heard of it. She was aware of the fact that Jehu had come, and no doubt she already knew some of the things that had transpired. But did you notice she appeared not to be particularly concerned? It says she painted her face. To you ladies, she put on her makeup is what that means. Furthermore, it says she tired her head. She put the royal attire, or at least some kind of attire, upon her head. And then it says she looked out at a window. At this point, we immediately gain a picture. Here was Jehu, and she was some distance upward looking down, no doubt feeling that she was in a place of security and a place of safety. In that ancient era, we each remember that the particular way that most of those palaces, or at least the safe havens, were built... There was a rather high castle where the place of safety was known, and they would always take the king and his entourage there. Obviously, the, those that cast arrows and those that were in other ways their enemies, they would not be able to attack, for that was the most closely guarded place of all. You'll notice then with me the following. As you come to the bottom of that slide, it does say, though, that she looked out the window. So Jehu was aware of the fact that she was there, for he saw her. Look at what happens next, if you would. On this next slide, you appreciate it brings us to verse 31. And, and as Jehu entered into the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace who slew his master? Notice she, in essence, issues a threat. You and I remember that in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17, the story of Zimri is presented. And there was a man who, we remember, was such that her question leads us to note this. Had Zimri peace who slew his master? 
When Zimri was guilty of uh, aiding in the assassination of others, Zimri also soon died. In fact, he had the shortest reign of any of the kings. He lasted a week. He only reigned one little week. And so Jezebel, in essence, issues a threat to Jehu. Do you remember, Jehu, what happened to Zimri when he opposed those that were in authority? Let's read further. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. There were servants that were also in that place, no doubt assisting in the safekeeping of the king's entourage. And we notice that this man, Jehu, asked, Who is on my side? At this point, no doubt, he was somewhat interested in there being at least someone there who could offer a bit of assistance to his cause to ultimately defeat all of those that were still in the family of Ahab. The next verse, verse 33. And he said that he is Jehu. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. Jehu made the observation, throw her down. And as he did so with a bit of emphasis and a bit of order, if you please, you'll notice they, referring to those eunuchs, threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled. You might notice that verb sprinkled literally means in the ancient text, spattered. As she comes down, and the height is not given to us, but in any way as she collided with the ground, some of her blood apparently spattered upon the wall of the palace and some of it even on the horses that were there in Jehu's group. And you'll notice it says, He, that's Jehu, trod her underfoot. She was trampled beneath the feet of the horses. Finally, it says, verse number 34, And when he was coming in, he did eat and drink and said, Go, see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. That fills in a bit of detail for us as we reflect on the fact that she really was this daughter of a king. Now remember her dad was actually a king of a foreign nation and that's partly why Ahab married her likely. To develop an association with a foreign power so that they wouldn't attack him. But you notice it says at least give her the dignity of burying her but even that was not to be. Let's read further. Wherefore? I'm sorry, verse 35, And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel. And so they shall so that they shall not say, This is Jezebel. I promised you it did read somewhat graphically, but you'll notice after her death, after she had fallen from that height, they did come with the intent at least to bury her, but in that event, all they found was the skull, the palms of her hands, according to verse number 35, and her feet. That's all they found. The remainder of her carcass was not to be found, and you'll notice the dogs had consumed it. In that brief period of time between when Jehu had gone to celebrate his victory and when these servants returned to bury her, her body couldn't even be identified. It couldn't even be found. 
You'll notice that even Jehu realized this was the doing of God. And this is what happens to those that defy the God of heaven. As you look at a statement like that, isn't it easy to see that Jezebel, in terms of the way that she met her death, and in the kind of life that she had lived, no wonder we can close that slide and notice what a very sordid way to close it. Verse 37, The carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung. I would ask that you and I not only focus upon that, but to make some applications to your life and to mine, and yea, the life of any individual even to this day. And do that beneath a heading in which we can give some thought to a certain loss. I'm sure you like myself, and maybe we've all made statements somewhat like it. Have you heard statements like, there seems to be only a few certain things in life such as taxes and death? But I would ask you to notice there is an absolute certainty attached to what happens to anybody that defies God. Any being that so rebels against the God of heaven and defies that which is the commission, the order, the directive of God, there's an absolute certainty that surely can be appreciated in light of the death of Jezebel. Maybe we can build on that point like this. Why don't we give a brief consideration to a few who found themselves in that kind of position. That is to say, who the Scriptures inform us were rebels to God's cause. We might well begin by reflecting on the wisdom of Gamaliel in Acts 5.39. Here was a gentleman, and what wisdom he uttered in that passage as he made statement of, you know what happens to anybody that resists God. We know what happened to Jezebel. What happened to that devil when he resisted God? He elevated himself above the station, the estate that was his keeping in Jude verse 6. And we remember that, of course, he was cast down in 2 Peter 2, 4. And there he's held in chains regarding a place of ultimate judgment that shall be his. We see again what happens to those that rebel against God. What happened to Korah in number 16? Here was a gentleman who thought that the authority that had been vouchsafed to Moses and Aaron was just as rightfully his. And so he told Moses and Aaron, you take too much upon you. And so in light of that, he tried to elevate himself also above that station and ignore God's directive. And we remember the earth swallowed him alive as well as his family. One more time we begin to see what happens to those that defy God. Maybe in light of that, you can appreciate what a powerful statement then we find in the heart of the New Testament. Please look with me near the close of Romans chapter 1. Here, as you and I give thought to what happens to those that defy God, let's ask, what about today those that choose to defy Him? Those that make a choice to live in a way that's rebellious to His cause. Paul is often one that presents to you and to me listings. Aren't we familiar with several of them in the inspired writings due to him? There's that listing of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, that listing of the fruits of the Spirit in the same chapter, that listing of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, another set of sins found, of course, in 2 Timothy 3. What about this list? This is the most exhaustive one of the group. I'll simply begin reading in verse number 28. Romans chapter 1, verse 28, and we'll read through verse 32. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So immediately we are reading about some who didn't have an interest in retaining God in their knowledge. They were defiant to His cause. Verse 28 goes on to say, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. What things, Paul, are these things which are not convenient? Verse number 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And please note the conclusion of verse 32 with me. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. What happened to Jezebel when she defied God? Her death was gruesome, but her death was portrayed by the prophet Elijah. And now we read about here a whole listing of activities that again are by those who have not retained God in their knowledge. And in that way we notice that they which commit such things are quite frankly, Paul says, worthy of death. And not only they, but notice even those who encourage these activities, even if they themselves are not directly guilty of them. If you uphold the hands of these guilty of these, Paul says you too, quite frankly, are worthy of death in at least a proverbial way. Let's revisit somewhat briefly some of the matters in that list and highlight today how strong is the Word of God about the nature of the opposite of these things. It all begins in verse 29. And as you and I have seen, one could add to this list that which has just preceded it, and we should do well to include it. The sin of homosexuality is there, isn't it? Maybe no passage in all the New Testament more to the point than Romans 1, verses 26 to 28, as it describes these choices of both men and women to pursue their own sexual kind. And in that way, that's included as you and I look very strongly at verses 28 and 29. First of all, being filled with all unrighteousness. These who have not retained God in their knowledge, maybe we aren't surprised that they are pursuing unrighteousness. And so it is, as they have chosen not to retain God in their knowledge. Their choice and pursuit of a reprobate mind. Notice that word reprobate close akin to reprobacy that simply has this notion of defy in it. Here we're reading about some who are choosing to defy God. He says, fornication, verse 29, this character of opposing the decrees that God has given relative to appropriate sexual behavior, God says those who pursue this are worthy of death. You'll notice in the power and majesty of it next is a broad term like wickedness. I've asked you to look at it like that. Wickedness is so often attached to ungodliness, opposed to the will and the power and the certainty of God's right way, that wickedness is followed quickly by that word covetousness. 
having that desire for what somebody else, so much so that you would almost do anything to get it. You're motivated by what they've got and what you don't, or in some cases what they don't have and what you do, be it problems or otherwise. And sometimes we forget that idolatry is covetousness, according to Colossians 3.5. You'll notice beyond that we come to this term maliciousness. That's a long word, isn't it? It simply means something simple. It means malice or ill will. To have that mentality of wishing the worst on someone else, to in fact desire that that would be in their worst welfare, to wish them ill will. Paul says to do that is to have the opposite character of godliness. That is not hand in hand with God's righteousness, is it? As you proceed beyond that one, we come to envy. Found, of course, in verse number 29. Did you notice it says, full of envy? Do you know of someone so motivated by envy? It seems as if every decision that they make seems to hinge in one way or another on the reality of envy. That kind of life is so sorrowful, isn't it? It isn't based on what's positive, it's based on what's negative. And it isn't based on what looks to that which is the better blessing of God. It's based on the rather sad circumstance of always comparing to someone else. We learn in 2 Corinthians 10, 18, for example, as well as chapter 12 of that same book, that we should look and make comparison not to situations like that. As you go past envy, notice now we read directly about murder. And don't we later read that not only the physical taking of someone's life, but didn't John tell us if you hate somebody, you've committed murder already? 1 John chapter 4. In light of a an idea like that one. We quickly erase to that consideration of debate. That word literally in the original language means strife. To encourage division, to encourage not getting along, to encourage a sense of interior division. There were those in the first century like that, and there are still some of that kind, aren't there? Not only that, you'll notice deceit. To purposefully mislead to purposefully lead aside from that which is the truth of a matter. Deception, obfuscation, if you will, all of that is included in this consideration, isn't it? Beyond deceit, we come to malignity. Another somewhat broad term, it basically means in the original, bad character. How is your reputation in mind? Does it stand up to wholesomeness? Does it stand up to soundness? Or is it somewhat shady and somewhat questionable? Perhaps to our mind comes Proverbs 22, 1, that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than wisdom and honor. It might well be of note, we arrive at whisperers, those who talk behind the back, those who gossip, those who speak of that which they do not know as the truth and share it as if it is, even they are included in the list like this. Isn't that a strong warning about how we should guard our lips and our mouth? Because didn't James tell us that the tongue is an unruly evil and it's full of deadly poison? James 3, verses 6 and 7. The nature of that evil takes us to verse number 30. Backbiters. The notion of vengeance is included in a thought like this one. Those who want to get back at someone for what they've done... 
Aren't we told in Romans chapter 12, vengeance belongs not to us, it belongs to the Lord. You and I are not to be of a disposition of getting even. We're to be of those who are described in Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Isn't it amazing then that you notice haters of God? Those who literally have in their character and disposition an overt hate for God, they detest His way, they loathe and abominate that which He stands for. There are those in our world like that. Paul says, notice, they are included in this list with all these others that we've noted. Beside those that hate God, he next makes mention of those that are described as despiteful. Have you ever known of someone who seems to be motivated by spite? They are motivated by an attitude of ill will as it manifests itself in spite. Perhaps that's close to vengeance. Perhaps that's close to an attitude of getting even. And you'll notice is this despitefulness in verse number 30 is followed by those that are proud. I've asked you to notice in parentheses that it seems as if one of the implications of the original word at least has to do with a behavior that's insulting. Someone who goes about seemingly uncaring about that which others consider and are always happy to insult, happy to belittle, happy to demean, well, notice that that kind of behavior is also frowned upon and notice it's worthy of death. Perhaps finally on that slide, notice this pride that appears here maybe leads us to observe how evil sometimes pride finds itself presented in the Bible. Maybe as you look at these last ones, I thought we'd look at boasting in relation to a pridefulness. We all know what it means to brag and to boast and to have a braggadocio spirit about us. Isn't it sometimes so very difficult to carry on conversations with those when all they seemingly want to talk about is to brag about themselves and to lift themselves up so high and although we're perhaps happy that they have the abilities or the possessions they do, it's also not a good thing to always speak about that which God has so blessed us with but rather in humility to appreciate that should be used in lowliness of spirit to borrow the language of Colossians 3.12. Perhaps you'll also notice there are those that invent evil things. They come up with ways to use matters in an evil way. I sometimes think about scientific discoveries, and although we appreciate them, isn't it true? It's possible for someone with an ungodly mind can figure out a way to use it in a way that harms the human family, and in a way that really opposes the work and the will and the plan of God. Paul says there's going to be a time of judgment for them. You'll also come with me to disobedience to parents. Young people, listen carefully. And may I say, even us who are older, we still, if we have parents living, need to appreciate a concern and a compassion and a care for them. For disobedience to parents is included in this list with all these other sins. May we then realize that in Ephesians 6 verses 1 and 2 that we're to honor father and mother and that lasts throughout life. It lasts all the while that we're blessed with them upon this earth. As that kind of statement is so quickly followed by this one, those without understanding. 
I've asked you to notice in parenthesis, the original word carries with it the idea of senselessness. These who act with such foolishness and such frivolity and who act with such a sense of folly in light of what they do, if they had any true understanding, they wouldn't behave that way. I believe we're beginning to see there's a fair amount of correspondence between some of these because isn't it true that if a person really knew the judgment of God, he wouldn't commit fornication. And if a person knew how God looks upon division and strife, he wouldn't encourage it. And surely one like that is somewhat senseless. But in light of that, you'll notice, what about those that are covenant breakers? I find that intriguing, don't you? For covenant breaking literally means those who are untrustworthy and those who are faithless. Are you a person of your word? Am I a person of mine? If you give your word to someone, are you intent to hold true to it? Notice Paul says if we give little consideration to the power of our words, we are covenant breakers. God never was. Wasn't He always true to the covenant He made with Israel? And didn't He desire them to be faithful and true to the covenant as well? They weren't, however, and He was. This covenant breaking is followed by those that were without natural affection. And again, the literal meaning is that which is unloving or unfeeling. Those who cared not about the nature of the standing of these matters, they had no love and consideration, no compassion and care within them. They were without feeling. God doesn't desire you and me to be people without feeling. He made us with a Bible heart, didn't He? And it's not that, that organ in the chest. It's a heart that should be touched with the feeling and the infirmities of others. We're to love them. We're to have brotherly love in the language of 2 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. We're to have that agape love as we share the character even with our enemies of wishing them the best and well. Surely as we look at one final word, the word unmerciful, these who were only interested in judgment but did so without mercy. Thankfully, isn't it true the God of heaven is a God of judgment, but He is a God of judgment with mercy. He has extended to you and me the opportunity to be saved, to have sins forgiven. His mercy is so wonderful. Finally, in verse number 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Notice Paul says the judgment of God is this, that they who are guilty of these things are worthy of death. You and I know that physical death may not directly come their way because of it, but spiritual death does. They are alienated from God, separated from His majesty and His goodness, and unless they repent, unless they make things right... They will die in that state and forever be separated from Him. As we reflect upon these matters, I would encourage all of us to use Jezebel as an example. Look at how she died. You and I don't want any kind of life that ends even proverbially, spiritually like this. Worthy of death? Maybe one final slide, a slide of conclusion. Jezebel's death is surely one of the most memorable in all the Bible because of it's so graphic. As we read it, we almost gulp as we notice that what God said through the prophet Elijah came to pass exactly as it was said to be. Though she thought she was in a position of safety in that bastion and citadel of strength, she was thrown down and of course her death 
was what we noted earlier. Isn't it true that you and I also are meeting the time of our own death? And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And you and I know that we shall give an account before the God of heaven. Does my life exemplify any of these things we've stated? If so, I need to repent and I need to make it right. Same is true for you. If your life has exemplified any of these, may we all with an attitude of desire wish to remove it, eliminate it so that our death, so that our end of this life in the flesh will not in any sense, either spiritually or physically, be comparable to that of Jezebel. Her life was a sorry one and her death was a gruesome one. May you and I desire to leave this life in peace. With all the blessedness of a statement like Nehemiah 13, verse 31, Remember me, O oh my God, for good. I hope you and I, as we approach our death, that kind of statement could in fact be said. Tonight, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, Jesus Christ came that you might live and that you might have life more abundantly. And that's just the opposite of this sorry life of Jezebel. John chapter 10, verse 10. But He also came that you might approach death, not in a gruesome fashion, but in a way of hope, a way of peace, and in a way of all the assurance of heaven. If tonight you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and humbly submit to His will and be baptized. Don't oppose it, don't defy God's command, but humbly do what He said. If we could help you do that, we'd be happy to do it. If you need to return to your first love, why not come back, make confession of errors if they're known publicly, God's promise to forgive them, and reinstate you to a position of faithfulness. If we could pray on your behalf, we'd be happy to do it. You need to confess and repent of those things. If either of these things would be the need of your life tonight, don't delay, but why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?